Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. All right, let's get going. Acts chapter 19 is where we're going to hang out today. Uh, Next week, we're beginning our series of messages through the book of Ephesians, a New Testament letter. And so you may be wondering, why are we in Acts chapter 19 today? Because that's where in the book of Acts, the church at Ephesus began. And so this is kind of an introductory sort of message to our study of Ephesians, which we're, as Reynolds mentioned, we're going to be in Ephesians um, probably for uh, a couple months or just however long it takes us. We, we don't have that charted out. And uh, so that's, that's one of the richest, most helpful, theologically robust letters in the entire New Testament. I'm really looking forward to hanging out in it. Then after Ephesians, we'll probably be back in a shorter Old Testament book. And then, and then um, we, we haven't planned further beyond that. But um, uh, that's what we're doing. Today we're going to look at Acts chapter 19. So go ahead and find Acts 19. We're going to work through the whole chapter. No points today. No, no notes. Nothing on the screen. Um, just one overarching thought. And that one overarching thought is... This is what I want us to be thinking about as we begin to read this is, I want us to see how the gospel disrupts this region, this city of Ephesus, and then I want us to think about how the gospel should disrupt our lives as a sort of setup for the message of the gospel and all of its implications that we'll read about in the coming weeks and months in Ephesians. And as you're finding Ephesians, just let me mention one little bittersweet note here. We have a couple that has joined the church, been part of the church for the past year or so. This is their last Sunday at Crosspoint, a young military couple, uh, Nick and Courtney Drake. I don't know if they're here today. Are you guys here? They're right there. There's Nick. I think Courtney's probably with the baby um, in the cry room or the nursery. But Nick and Courtney uh, are uh, going to Fort Campbell, Kentucky. Nick is a captain in the army and they had their baby Eli here so he's a native he's he's a citizen of the uh, state of the country of Georgia um, but the Drakes are actually um, fellow citizens of my home country of California and so they're going to Tennessee which evidently um, is another state in the Union if you went to public school like I did it's just above Georgia and there's a there's a place there called Fort Campbell Kentucky where he will very likely in the coming uh, weeks and months become a company commander there, and uh, as he did as a young lieutenant uh, here in the coming weeks and months and years, he will be in harm's way fighting for our freedom, and so uh, we salute you, Nick. Very thankful for you being part of this church this past year, and uh, please know that as you go to Fort Campbell, you have a tribe of people loving you guys, and um, this is will always be home for you guys, so we love you. Make sure you hug Nick and kiss that sweet baby Eli before they leave. All right, why is Acts 19 so important? Just very quickly, Acts 19 gives us a sort of snapshot of the impact that the gospel makes on a particular region. Why is this so important? It's because we live in a culture that is awash, let's just be honest, it is awash with cultural Christianity, where many people think that they are right with God merely because they have some sort of affiliation with a local church. And we have, ironically enough, in the place of the country that we call the Bible Belt, where Christianity, we think, is most alive and active, actually often the inverse is true, is that it's actually kind of become watered down and nominal and powerless. And people, in the place where there seems to be churches all over the place, 
maybe more than other places in the country and world, actually have a, a, a very, uh, a very uh, incorrect view of the gospel and all of its implications because they've bought into a sort of neutered, watered-down gospel. And what we have in Acts chapter 19 is a snapshot, a picture of what it looked like in this one particular city and region when the gospel hit it like a, like a Mack truck and turned it upside down. So for how that hits us, it'll be a little bit different. Our culture's a little bit different. But that's what I want us to see as a sort of setup for our study that Paul then writes back as a letter called the letter of Ephesians to this city several years later after he planted the church there as a setup. And so that's why, that's why today is so important. That's the only thing I want us to see and then to make application to our lives is, is how does the gospel disrupt Ephesus? So let me pray and then we'll start reading. Lord, I, I pray today that as we s- sang together just a little while ago, I, I confess that I need you, we need you, I pray, Lord, that as we work through this chapter that is your divinely inspired record of events of Paul's ministry in Ephesus, I pray that you'd stir our hearts. Lord, we, we are a people that worship at the altar of functionality and pragmatism. And so often we are so... We, we, we just follow along with the culture. And we have reduced you down to a mere moral ethic. And I pray today that as we look at how the gospel just did a cannonball in the deep end of this cesspool of idolatry that was Ephesus, I pray that you would awaken our hearts, stir our hearts, convict us, encourage us, Our goal is not just to get through church on Sunday in the South. Lord, our goal is to see and savor Jesus in all of his splendor. And so by the power of your Holy Spirit, would you help us do that? And for my friends that may be in this room who have not yet trusted in Jesus, who are not yet believers, Lord, would you break through their dead, stubborn, unbelieving hearts? And would you cause them to pass from death to life? And would you give them the gift of saving faith and repentance so that they can look to Jesus and trust in him and turn away from self-righteousness and sin and become your children today for the first time? Lord, would you do that, I pray. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, let's read. I'm going to read and stop and just kind of explain as we go and, and then we'll be done and then we'll... Sp- Spend some time responding in worship, and we'll have communion open for those of you that are followers of Jesus, whether you're part of this church or not. You're welcome to come and respond by receiving communion and examining your life in light of Jesus' work on the cross. All right, Acts 19, let's read. And it happened that while Apollos was at, was at Corinth, remember that's the city where Paul wrote the letter to the Corinthians that we spent about half a year studying before we got into Ruth. Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples, and he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, No, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, Into what then were you baptized? And they said, Into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, 
That is Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about 12 men in all. All right, let me stop here and just give you a little brief explanation of what's going on. This is a unique time in the advance of the gospel from Jerusalem, where Jesus spent a majority of his life in ministry, then into the Roman Empire. So we're really in just the first few decades of the spread of the good news of the message of Jesus. And really, this is, this is an incredible snapshot into sort of that unfolding. And what we have here is these Gentile Ephesian believers that have apparently heard the message that John was proclaiming at the beginning of the Gospels, and they haven't quite yet heard the full gospel of trusting in Jesus. They had kind of heard the, the forerunner message. And so they, we can think of it, they, they almost had, in a sense, a sort of Old Testament understanding of the gospel, where these prophets were pointing forward to what Christ would do. And then John the Baptist, in a sense, is sort of like the last Old Testament prophet, in a way, kind of pointing forward to Christ's work. And that's where where these men seem to be in their understanding of the message of the gospel. And Paul comes and he finishes it off. He he gives them the full redemptive storyline of what Jesus has done on the cross. And then we see them very visibly notably receiving the Holy Spirit and speaking in tongues and prophesying. Now, I'm not going to take too much time to think about that because we went through a couple messages when we looked at the book of Corinthians about spiritual gifts. Here at this church, we believe that all the spiritual gifts are still active, but we don't think that any one particular spiritual gift is a sign of any second experience, and so you could take some time to download that message. But I will just make one point here, is that Some Christians who love Jesus, who we love, uh, that usually come from the Pentecostal and charismatic sliver of the Protestant church, see this example as a sort of individual pattern that you believe in Jesus and then there's this second experience called the baptism of the Holy Spirit where you receive the Spirit and then you speak in tongues. I don't think that's what's going on here. I think what's going on here is that these Ephesian, now new believers in Jesus, receive this Spirit And then they speak in tongues. And I think what's going on there is really God is sort of confirming to the early Jewish apostles that the gospel is not just for the Jewish believers, like it fell on them in Acts chapter 2 in the upper room, but it's also for these Ephesian Gentiles. And so I think what's going on here is God is sort of authenticating the moving of the gospel across ethnic lines. And so in Acts chapter 2, when the Holy Spirit fell on those early Jewish believers and they spoke in tongues to sort of confirm for them that God was, was birthing the church out of them. Then we see that repeated again in Acts chapter 8 with these Samaritans and God does that the same way. And then in Acts chapter 10, these Gentile believers become Christians and they speak in tongues too. And then in Acts chapter 19, we see these Ephesian believers become Christians and they very notably speak in tongues and prophesy as well. I don't think we should see that as an individual sign that all Christians must do, but as something that to show us for history that God is moving the gospel across ethnic lines. So what we have here is these 12 men who become Christians, and Paul closes the deal, shares the gospel with them, and then he sort of settles down there in Ephesus and begins to teach. So let's pick it up in verse 8. 
And he entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. That'll be important. Just note that phrase, kingdom of God. We'll get back to it in just a second. Verse 9. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years, so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. I want you to notice there in verse 8, it says that Paul entered into the synagogue. That was his custom. He would go to the Jewish believers first that were gathered in that area. He would teach them, and then he would sort of move his message beyond that. And notice there in verse 8, it says he was reasoning and persuading with them about the kingdom of God. You would expect there maybe that it would say, if you had just not read this and you were just, you know, the first time reading through this chapter, you would expect there that he might say something like that he was persuading and reasoning with them about Jesus' work on the cross or the message of the gospel or the forgiveness of sins that can be found in Jesus' work. But, but this phrase, the kingdom of God, seems to sort of blow it up on a little bit bigger level there. And what's going on there? I think Paul is obviously teaching them about salvation in Christ's work on the cross. And so he's, he's giving them the plain gospel message. He's saying to them that righteousness in God's economy has always come from faith in God. And now with Christ's work on the cross, we know that we can never work our way into right standing with God. Now law abiding and eating the right food or some festival that we keep or circumcision or religious works or any nothing like that is able to make us right with God but the gospel message of trust and faith in Jesus's work alone is what saves us and makes us new with God right with God but then from that flows implications for all of life and so Paul preaches to them not that there's just this one-time hit where you have this sort of exchange with God by believing in his son Jesus, and then kind of continue on with your life, he's saying, which is actually more offensive to these people, he's saying that this Jesus is king and creator and author of the world. And he, as we have that quote up the beginning of the service, this Dutch theologian back around the turn of the century, the last turn of the century, the 1800s, 19, Abraham Kuyper, he had this quote where he said that, that, that Jesus, there's not one inch of the universe over which Jesus does not cry, mine, right? So that's a little bit more offensive than just saying, oh, well, if you will just raise your hand at the end of the service and come down and fill out this card when I'm done preaching and believe with your mouth and just kind of confess this message as how you need to be saved and then you can scoot along your merry way and continue to get plastered on Friday night and do whatever you want with your money and give yourself to all sorts of broken counterfeit pleasures, you can be a Christian. No, that's not what Paul's preaching to them. He's saying that you must come to faith in Christ which is offensive enough as it is. You can't save yourself. He's saying you must believe in Jesus, but then when you become a Christian, Jesus has dominion over your life. You're his, you're bought with a price, he says in 1 Corinthians 6. And so he's not just preaching this one-time hit. He's preaching the lordship of the king of the kingdom, which is the message of the kingdom of God and for idolaters and self-righteous Religious people like us, that's offensive. You were made by a creator who made you for something beyond just your own pleasure. 
actually made you for his glory, which in the beautiful way of God actually we find out is actually the most pleasurable thing to live for. And notice what effect it has on some of the people. It says that some of, some of them became stubborn and continued in unbelief. A little side note here. That's tremendously encouraging for me. I mean, the, the apostle Paul, who if anybody's got a juice card, he's got a juice card. I mean, he, he wrote 13 books of the New Testament. We're going to read here in a second. He's passing his handkerchief around. People are touching it and getting healed. Pretty good preacher. And people, people are, are I mean, you, you, you're listening to the Apostle Paul preach, and you're like, nah, I don't think so. But they did the same thing for Jesus. Friends, what are we to make of this? Well, this is a humbling truth, but, but I think we need to make of this two things. Number one, the gospel is offensive. The gospel is offensive. And the other thing is that it is only God that can soften a heart to the gospel. Jesus puts it this way in, in, in the gospel, John 6, I'm thinking of specifically. He says that no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. This is what Paul says in, in, uh, in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14. Let me read, just, just listen to this. Listen to, the, listen to how this should humble us as we think about sharing the gospel, being a people centered on the gospel. Listen, this is what Paul says about his ministry. He says in 2 Corinthians 2, verse 14, he says, But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession, and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. Okay, so that's what Christians do. They're just like a, like a perfume bottle for Jesus. That's what they do, right? You're not, it's not so that you can have a better life now or some sort of you know, self-focused uh, prosperity gospel. Jesus is there to help you out, but that you're there to make much of Jesus. That's the life of a Christian. Through us, we're just a perfume bottle. Jesus just squirts us, and we just, psh, we just that's what we do. Verse 15, for we are the aroma of Christ to God. Listen to this now, and be, let's be humbled by this. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. So what he's saying there is he's saying that you're just supposed to squirt Jesus' perfume wherever you go. And how that hits the human heart is God's business. To those whom God is saving, he will cause it to hit their heart, be effective, and cause them to pass from death to life. For those whom are perishing, it will just be God's judgment on them, and they will become stubborn and unbelief and continue in that. Friends, that is humbling and simultaneously really, really, really encouraging. Because we, we know that we can't, manipulate people into believing in Jesus. That's God's business. God softens the human heart. That's what he does. And friends, he delights in doing that. And so don't look at this negatively and say, oh no, salvation's all up to God. And then all of a sudden think that God isn't for the salvation of your unsaved child or friend. No, friends, God is 
far more for the display of his grace and mercy than our unsaved loved ones could ever be for their own good. And so I would much rather trust in a God who is rich in mercy rather than the shackled will of my loved one who doesn't know Jesus. And friends, that's humbling, and and that should posture us towards great confidence in God. And it should also not shock us why much of the world hates the message of the gospel. There are people that are going to become stubborn and not believe. And friends, if that's you right now, even just if I, as I've been preaching here, and you're just kind of like hardness and... um, Angst is rising up in your heart. As, as the writer of Hebrews says, don't, don't, don't harden your heart when you hear his voice. Or, if you are like many young people, you, you think, yeah, okay, I cognitively agree with the message of Christianity, but I'm going to wait until later on. I had some fun in my college years, and then I'll start living for Jesus. No, 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 no. You, you, are, you are also hardening your heart. And, and what you're doing there is, is you're saying, ultimately, that salvation is on your timeline and you can generate it when you want. No, friends. F- saving faith is a gift that God gives. Repentance is a gift that God gives. Do not presume upon the kindness of God. Romans 2 says that. And so right now, if you hear his heart, right now, turn in faith. You don't have to wait. I'm not, we're not getting to a crescendo here where I'm going to give you an opportunity to close the deal. Right now, believe in Jesus. Look to Jesus right now. Trust in him. Forsake your self-trust. Forsake your timeline. Forsake your unbelief. Lay down your stubbornness and look to Jesus even right now. Right now. But let's keep reading. The gospel's an offense. But the good news is that God is is pleased to make stubborn hearts soft. Verse 11. God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul. Listen to this now, verse 12. So that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. Wow. Let me just pause there and say, that happened. I believe that. Uh, and I believe also that God can and does delight as a display of his sovereign grace and mercy to occasionally still people he, uh, heal people miraculously. However, I don't think that this is a pattern for our ministry. So if you're inclined to watch a certain TV preacher who asks you to send in a piece of cloth and he will pray over it and then when he sends it back to you for a kind donation of $100 or $1,000 or whatever, that you will have some sort of special blessing from God, find your next door neighbor little snotty-nosed kid's baseball and throw it through your TV set as just a sort of display of your angst at that junk right there. Maybe don't do that, but run. At least turn the channel. All right, at least turn the channel. I just had to get that in there. I just have this sort of tick that gets me going when I see a message that the whack prosperity, name it and claim it, false healing gospel people use. All right, so now I've got the twick out. Okay, here we go. But God can heal, friends. God can heal. So if there's any sick among you, let him pray. 
Let them have the elders of the church come and let them pray. Because God is kind to at times heal us. But let's not, let's not get in any goofy little tricks where we imitate stuff and act like God is now somehow obligated to follow some pattern. That's just silliness. But God is sovereign and he's kind and he heals. But ultimately he wants to heal our soul. Verse 13. Then some of the, listen, this is great. This is awesome. This is, a, this is one of my favorite scenes in the book of Acts. It's funny and humbling all at the same time. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists, who are these people? I mean, that, is that like, do you have a business? I'm an itinerant Jewish exorcist. That's what I do. <laughs> Undertook, I mean, how do you get into that? Is there a, is there a technical college for that? I mean, what? Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Verse 14, seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Siva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize. But, uh, come again now, who are you? (laughs) And just imagine, just stop after verse 15 and just insert crickets chirping soundtrack, you know, awkwardness, pregnant pause. Oh, snap. (laughs) You just got called out. (laughs) Verse 16. (laughs) And it doesn't stop there. And the man... In whom was the evil spirit, leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them, so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. That's what you call getting whooped right there, right? I mean, I've been beat up a few times by my older brother. I've heard legendary stories of the Herndon brothers fighting out in Hatchachubby. I, I don't know that either one of you have left one of those fights naked and wounded, right? One, one weekend when my parents were away and we were in high school, I think I was a freshman, my brother was a senior, he locked me in the bathroom all weekend long. He, he imprisoned me in our bathroom and occasionally opened it up and, and, and made a sandwich for me just to feed me but he utterly dominated me. And all the whoopings I took from my big brother, I don't think I ever ended any of them naked. I mean, they got punked. Right? I don't have a point. I just want you to see that. That's just, that's getting whooped. Verse 17, And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks. And fear fell upon them all. And the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. And many, also many of those who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it to come to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Here's just a little point to think about here that I see just jump out of this scene where these seven sons of Siva get dominated. And then we see it as a display of 
the true power that Paul had with Jesus. And that is this, that confession and repentance are fruits of the gospel when it disrupts our lives. These people didn't just sort of stop at this fear of, oh my gosh, these counterfeits got dominated. But Paul is preaching this true and living God. It moved them to actually turn from their false magic and practice and repent and to believe in Jesus. And friends, that, that, that is a necessary step for anybody that comes to Jesus. We, we see these people, they, they were sort of adding Jesus to their lives already as if Jesus was like an, like an app that you download from the Apple store. He just is there to sort of make your life better. And I think that's the the trick that many American people fall into. It's like Jesus is just an addition. He is promised by many prominent preachers as just life 2.0. But he's not. He's the savior and creator of the world who demands everything from our life and demands allegiance. And, and we see these, these people getting it right. They rejected the mixing of Jesus with their practices. They rejected it and they trusted in Christ. They repented. They turned. The message of Christianity is not add Jesus onto your existing life and things will start to become better. It's forsake your self-trust. Forsake self-righteousness. Forsake trusting in these other things for right standing or your satisfaction and trust in Jesus. You know, friends, most of us, I mean, I don't think that we have any itinerant Jewish exorcists in this church, but friends, don't, aren't we sort of adding Christianity and other things in our life? I mean, don't, don't we rely on other things? And the gospel comes and it turns our heart. It gives us a new heart so that we can repent of these things and turn from these things and trust in Jesus. Have you done that? Or have you just kind of grown up in a weak, weak church world where Jesus is just somebody that you talk about occasionally and the pastor reads some silly little story on Sunday and he kind of sprinkles holy water on you and then we're good for a week and then we come back. Friends, that's not Christianity. It's not the Bible. It's not what we're going to learn about in Ephesians. The message of the gospel, the message of Christ is to turn from these things, to turn from our broken, counterfeit sins, to turn from that and to trust in Jesus, not because he's wanting to be some sort of taskmaster, but because his goodness, his sufficiency is altogether more lovely and better and more satisfying than anything else that we can entangle ourselves with. So the message is not forsake joy. It is come to the only true joy. But that involves repentance. We have to turn from it. We have to turn from our self-trust and our, our way of doing life outside of God. That is a necessary fruit of the gospel, and we will see that in Ephesians when we, when we study it. And then the other thing I just want you to see before we continue reading is just the importance of community. They, they were confessing and divulging their practices. To who? I, I think clearly we can assume that they were confessing their sin and these practices to one another. Friends, we need each other. We need to live in Christian community. You can't just live the Christian life by occasionally coming on Sunday. This is what a life that is marked by gospel-centeredness and love of Christ looks like. You receive Christ by His sovereign grace. He gives you the gift of repentance and faith. 
you trust in Jesus, you connect yourself to a local assembly of believers that are wanting to do the same thing, and you give your heart to that thing, to that body of Christ, because that's where, as we'll read in Ephesians 3, God has deemed the place that he's going to most prominently display his wisdom to the world. And then you connect your life, you, you prioritize it, and then you become one of the means by which God molds other people. And you become, in that place, uh, one of the people that is giving your life to this community. And friends, part of the problem with, with church in the South is that we see church as a component. We see, we see like church membership as a component of, of just our life rather than kind of the central thing is our expression of living out our life for the one who created us. And my fear, quite frankly, for some of you is that you've joined this church or maybe you consider this your church home, but you have a very casual relationship with this place and you're not doing life here. You've prioritized every other thing in life over it and we could go down that list and we could say, oh, well, yeah, that's a good thing. I mean, none of you are doing black magic. You know, none of you are itinerant Jewish exorcists. So our thing may not be some false magic, but it's kids' sports or it's this or that or it's vacation or whatever. And we heap our lives full of stuff And we can never be close enough to where when the gospel lands on us or the gospel lands on a friend, we can actually be in this thing called the community where we actually can repent and confess and grow in Christ together. Because we're content to just come, get our hit two or three weekends out of the month, and then go our way, giving our lives away to these silly little pleasures. Friends, do you see just the the impact that the body of Christ had in these people's lives. It was central to their life. And we've got to do a whole lot better job of that. And one of the things that Wayne and I are, are, are going to rework, and with Wayne's help and his, just his, his wisdom is going to help us really, really even retool the way we do life point groups in this upcoming year. And I would just plead with you to, if you are on the fringe, man, fight through whatever is holding you back from biblical community and just commit to do life together with a group of people. Listen, it is so important that, that you, you've got to find a place to do that. You've got to find a body of believers, a small group of believers outside this large group setting whereby you can grow in Christ. Let's keep going, verse 21. Now after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and to go to Jerusalem, saying, After I have been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. Verse 23. About that time there arose, I love this wording, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. Don't you just love that? I mean, I admit I'm a little predisposed. I, was, I, don't, you know, I grew up in California in the 70s where there was a bunch of freaky cults kind of springing up everywhere and people were drinking grape juice and going down to South America. And so I'm, I'm like, the way, you know. But I mean, isn't that, isn't, that, isn't that beautiful, the way the Bible describes Christianity? The way, man. The all-encompassing way of Jesus, right? The Bible uses that language. The way. Not just this one-time hit with the gospel message, but the way that you give your life to this beautiful life called the Christ life. Verse 24, for a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. So these guys are worshiping Greek gods, and one of them was Artemis. And uh, Artemis was uh, the goddess of commerce and business and 
Actually, a meteor, uh, archaeologists think that, uh, in fact, we'll read about it in a little bit, but a rock, a meteor fell from the sky, and they actually thought that it kind of looked like Artemis. (laughs) So I don't know what type of statement that is about how Artemis looked. But anyway, this rock fell from the sky, and they thought it was like from the goddess Artemis. And so it became a sort of little shrine that they would go to and worship Artemis. And then there was this cat named Demetrius who had a little side business where he was making little Artemis bobblehead dolls and selling them for a nice little profit. Okay, so that's what's going on here. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. So things were going well. He was rolling in it. Verse 25. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus but also But in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people saying, listen to this, that gods made with hands are not gods. He almost says it with incredulity. Did I just make up a word? Okay, anyway, I think you guys know what I'm talking about. (laughs) My wife, yes, you just made up a word. But you know what I'm saying. He just says it with like, can you believe this? The audacity of Paul to say that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis, Artemis may be counted as nothing and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence. She whom all Asia and the world worship. Friends, that paragraph hardly needs any preach at all. Do you see that? The gospel smashed and challenged the idol of Ephesus, which wasn't just a little silver bobblehead of Artemis. It was the business behind it. And turned the culture and the commerce of Ephesus upside down. And it threatened their way of life. Friends, I don't think any of us worship little statues of uh, Wall Street or a presidential figure or whatever, but uh, really beyond that, don't we? What are our gods made with hands that are not gods? I wrote down here just a few. A functionality and pragmatism. We just want Christianity to be a way that helps us make life work better. And when when that doesn't happen, we get disappointed with Jesus because all we really wanted from him was a more successful 80 years. You know, we're political saviors. Man, I'm bracing myself for angst over the next year as we elect a new president or elect the same president or whatever. I mean, just people finding the hope of America in the Republican Party or the Democratic Party or some third-party candidate. I'm not saying don't be politically involved. I mean, vote. Vote often. Vote early. Vote often. I mean, vote twice. I mean, vote. <laughs> but, man, do you realize how subtle that idol can be? By finding hope in a political savior, economy, and money, 401Ks. I'm, I'm in the world of youth sports now with both of my boys doing things. And I, I know that tug, man. I know that tug. Just when you're finding your esteem in your child's performance in a race or a football game. 
Man, we live in a, a culture that is awash with worshiping children and their development. Friends, I'm not saying that we should not want our kids to do well. I mean, sign little Johnny and Susie up for all the activities and all that kind of stuff. But I think underneath it all is sometimes the insecurity of parents who are living vicariously through their kids, pinning their hopes and dreams. And a little snotty-nosed kid who's just trying to figure out how to tie his shoes. And all of a sudden, he's got to be the baseball all-star that travels on all these teams. And going, we, we spend, I mean, some of us spend more money on soccer shin guards and gear and bags and uniforms and clinics and extra instructions than we do the gospel spreading. And we wonder why our lives are unfulfilled and at our quietest hour pathetic. That's why, because we are worshiping gods made by hands that are not gods. Just a couple more fashion, fitness, social standing. What have we told ourselves we cannot live without? The human heart is an idol factory, John Calvin said, the great reformer. In fact, we can even make an idol out of our understanding of the true gospel. We can make an idol out of a good thing that is not the ultimate thing. I can make an idol out of the teachers nationally that I like to listen to. Verse 28. When they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. See this nationalistic pride here? When our idols are challenged, we're Americans. This is the American way. No, 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 no. The gospel challenges that. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Verse 29. So the city was filled with confusion and they rushed together into the theater. Dragging, this was a huge theater that they say seated about 20 or 30 people. So this is like this big amphitheater that overlooked the Mediterranean Sea in Ephesus. They rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd... The disciples would not let him. Think about, just to give you kind of a picture of the pandemonium of this moment. You know, this Arab Spring that we see on the news, and we see these unruly crowds in Damascus or in Syria or somewhere in Egypt. Think about just sort of that intensity, you know. Think about being in the middle of that crowd, and that's what's going on here. Just their culture's being turned upside down, and they're enraged. This is a very intense moment. Verse 31, and even some of the Asiarchs, who were friends of his, Asiarchs were city officials that happened to be friends of Paul, who were friends of his, sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Verse 32, listen to this. Now some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not know why they had come together. So everybody's just mad. It's just the lowest common denominator, group psychology. Riot! You know, somebody posts on Twitter, hashtag city square. Yeah! You know, they're just there, just like those bohemians on Wall Street riding over something, you know, you know, and so they're there, and they're, they don't even know, but just see underneath this, there's just this, in, there's just this futility to human rage. This reminds me of that verse in Matthew chapter 9, where it says that Jesus was preaching to the crowd, and he looked at him, and they were, they were harassed and helpless as sheep without a shepherd. And even these people that are hostile to the message of the gospel, deep down inside, most of them don't even know why. They're mad at Jesus and his way. Verse 33. 
Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward, and Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours, they cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Verse 35 says, And when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, honestly, I was, you know, first time I read through this, I was thinking, man, couldn't it have ended with, you know, somebody getting beat up a little bit? I mean, it started so well with the sons of Sceva, but somebody with a calm head sort of quiets things down. And then Paul sort of sneaks out, and as we read later on in Acts 20, he moves on to some other region. But then some level-headed town clerk quieted the crowd, said, Men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? Seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open. And there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly. For we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today, since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. Here's the only point I want you to see there, is that God in his sovereign plan was not done with Paul's ministry yet. This could have ended badly, and Paul could have been dragged into that city square and beaten and killed. But God had some more ministry for Paul. God determines the number of our days. Uh, you know, the, the, the life of the Christian is to just spread perfume for Jesus until God decides your day's up. And eventually, Paul's day was up. Legend has it is that he was beheaded, beheaded. He was killed. He was martyred in Rome. We don't know that for sure, but that's church legend. Church history points that direction. But this wasn't the time for Paul. God is sovereign over the number of our days. And God had more gospel for Paul to preach. And here's my question, friends. Do you, do you understand the, as we set up our study of Ephesians, do we as a church understand the all-encompassing, all-consuming nature of this thing this chapter calls the way, the gospel? This good news that God has put forth his son Jesus to live a perfect life, to store up righteousness, voluntarily laid down his life on the cross as a substitute for our sin, bearing God's wrath on the cross, satisfying that wrath and turning it into favor so that all who would ever turn and trust in Jesus and have faith in what he has done alone for their right standing with God be made new in him, and thereby give their lives to following him, the one true satisfying joy of all joys, would be saved. Friends, has that message, you may consider yourself a Christian now, but has that, is that message the defining truth of our lives? Is it the defining truth of my life? Or has the defining truth of my life become finding my satisfaction in telling people about that defining truth. Do you see how even subtly that becomes an idol? It's even more disguise. That, that, that my satisfaction can be in some sort of ministry success rather than in Jesus. Has the gospel transformed our lives? Or are we bowing down at the altar of gods made with hands that are not gods at all? Has the Holy Spirit spoke to you 
even in these last few minutes and just showed you some pathetic little bobblehead that you're worshiping. Friends, let's do what what these believers did in Acts chapter and in verse 18. Let's just repent and believe afresh in the gospel. Let's look at those idols and let the gospel smash them. Friend, if you've never believed in Jesus, right now, right now, look to him. You don't need to recite a specific prayer. You need to look to Jesus right now. Look to him. See, this is what's so good about this is, is, is the message of the gospel. He's not asking you to muster up something that you have. No, he's requiring of you something that you can't bring, but he gives what he requires. That's what makes the gospel such good news. Do you hear these words? Is your heart touched? Is it stirred? Is it warmed? Well, friends, that's evidence that God is using even my futile words to open up your heart to the message of his truth. Believe in it. Look to it. Look to Jesus right now and say, Jesus, I come to you. Forgive me of my sin. Forgive me of my self-trust. I trust in you. Do that even right now. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this beautiful chapter. Lord, I pray that my life and the life of this church collectively would be marked by gospel disruption. That we would not be able to contain or manage or quantify what happens in our lives and in this church as a result of the idol-smashing truth of Jesus. Lord, I pray that you would be so kind as to open up our eyes to the silly little things that we put in place of you. And I pray, Lord, for unbelievers in this room that they would be given the gift of repentance and faith so that they can see Jesus right now and trust in him alone as Lord and master of their life. And Lord, as we respond in song, I pray that we would consider these things and that we would respond as you lead us. In Jesus' name, amen.